As you consider and study the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, it becomes obvious that it was a multifaceted ministry. Jesus did not merely minister to the multitudes, though he certainly did minister to the multitudes, but that wasn't the exclusive focus of his ministry. In addition to that, he did many other things, and he had reasons for doing everything he did. First and foremost, his goal was to please the Father. That sounds like a cliche, but it's important to emphasize because it's easy in ministry to get a totally horizontal focus. What I mean is it is very easy to be driven by what people want and what people expect and what people assume you ought to be doing. Jesus faced that same pressure. But his goal always was to do what the Father wanted him to do and to please the Father. That focus resulted in a multifaceted ministry by our Lord. As we have seen already in our study of Mark's gospel, Jesus ministered to the multitudes in a variety of ways. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He preached the gospel. He called people to repentance. That was what you could call his public ministry to the multitudes. In addition to that, Jesus had a ministry to the official leaders of Israel. His ministry to the leaders of Israel was for the most part rejected by them, but he did challenge the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians and the Zealots and the Essenes. He challenged their view of salvation. He challenged their view of spirituality. He challenged their view of shepherding. He challenged their view of sanctification. In addition to the public ministry of Jesus, to the multitudes, and to the leaders of Israel, he also had what you could call a private ministry. His private ministry involved training and nurturing and equipping his disciples to serve with him and then to take over the ministry when he was gone. That is the focus of our text this morning in Mark chapter 3. Please turn with me in your Bible to the Gospel of Mark as we continue our trek through this Gospel account. Mark chapter 3. And follow along as I read verses 13 through 19. Mark chapter 3, verse 13. We are told, And Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted. And they came to him. Then he appointed twelve, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have power to heal sicknesses, and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. As we have seen over the past several weeks, Mark's gospel moves very rapidly in its presentation of the life and ministry of our Lord. Mark moves from one event to another and gives us these snapshots of the multifaceted ministry of Jesus. This section 
is about Jesus' work with his men. These were the men Jesus chose to be with him and to be trained by him. What was his basis for choosing these 12 men? Verse 13 answers that question. It says, He went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted. That was the basis. That is why Jesus chose these men. Because he wanted them. Out of all the multitudes of those who followed Jesus, and there were at various times thousands, Jesus chose those whom he wanted to choose to be his disciples. It was his choice. He didn't ask for a show of hands. He didn't ask for volunteers from the crowd. It was his own sovereign choice. In John 15, 16, Jesus told them this when he said, You have not chosen me but I have chosen you. The twelve disciples were chosen sovereignly. Notice the word called or summoned here in this verse. This is an intense Greek word which means to call to oneself or to call face to face. Jesus called his men to himself and he called them for the purpose of training them to do ministry. That's what is stated in the very next verse. Verse 14 says, Then he appointed twelve, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach. As I'm sure you know, these twelve are called disciples, which is a word that means learners or students. But they are also called apostles, which means sent ones. Jesus called his men to himself face to face so they might be with him for training so that he could send them out to do ministry. By the way, this is not the first time Jesus called these men to himself. There were actually several phases of their calling. The first phase of their calling was the call to salvation, the initial call to become a follower of him. In John 1, 35 through 51, Jesus called Andrew, Philip, Peter, and Nathaniel to salvation. He called those men to become his followers. Now, the Gospels do not record the salvation of all the disciples, but we are given that sampling in John chapter 1. In that phase, they went with Jesus for a while. They followed him for a while, but then they returned to their employment, whatever it happened to be. So phase 1 was their call to salvation. Phase two was their call to service. Back up to chapter one of Mark's gospel for just a moment. Just a few pages back, chapter one. <clears throat> Verse 16 says this. And as Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat mending their nets, and immediately he called them. And they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. 
Now understand something that's very important so that you're not confused. At this point, Peter, Andrew, James, and John had already been converted, or they, they had already been followers of Jesus. This is not the first time they met him. They had been followers of Jesus for at least a year. But here, Jesus calls them to leave their nets, to leave their work, their employment, their, their job, to follow him exclusively. This is a major change in their lives. This is phase two of their calling, their call to service. Now back to our text in chapter 3, because we have another phase of their calling. And here in chapter 3, this phase of their calling was what could be described as their calling for training. So they had a calling to follow, or a calling to salvation, then a calling to service. Now is a calling to training. Mark specifically tells us that Jesus called these 12 men to himself, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach. Jesus called them to spend time with him, and to observe him, and to learn from him, so they could go out as his representatives and preach to the multitudes and do the very things he did. Eventually, they did go out to preach and minister to the multitudes, but they came back for more training and to spend more time with Jesus for more on-the-job training. The day would come, however, when they would eventually be sent out on their own, and Jesus would no longer be present for them to return to for more training. This is recorded in John 20, 21, where Jesus said to them, As the Father has sent me, so send I you. In other words, men, I was sent by the Father. I am now sending you. You go and do what I've done, what I've trained you to do. In Acts 1, Jesus returned to heaven and sent the apostles to be his representatives here on the earth. So Jesus called them to himself, Mark tells us here in chapter 3. Jesus called them to himself to spend time with him and to learn from him in order that they might go out and preach to and minister to the multitudes. What were they going to do? Well, we just read in verse 14 that they were going to preach. But that's not all they were going to do. Verse 15 says, "...and and to have power to heal sicknesses..." and to cast out demons. This is a very important addition, and we dare not skip over it too quickly, especially in light of the popular teaching of our day and age. Notice that this verse tells us that Jesus gave his men unique power for their mission. Jesus gave this to them for this mission. That means, catch this, That means this was not something they had prior to this point. Prior to this time, they were not able to cast out demons. Prior to this time, they were not able to heal sickness. Yet, prior to this time, they were already what we would call Christians. They were already believers. So what is the point I'm trying to make? I think it's important to see that the power to cast out demons... And the power to heal sickness is not inherent in being a Christian. But this is exactly what many Christians teach today. They say, if you are a Christian, you can heal. If you are a Christian, you can cast out demons. If you are a Christian, you can speak in tongues. All Christians are supposed to do these things. Because these things are for all Christians. 
Beloved, that simply cannot be supported by Scripture. It cannot. These unique, miraculous sign gifts were never intended to be for every member of the body of Christ. In fact, none of the spiritual gifts, whether you're talking about teaching, mercy, helps, administration, none of the spiritual gifts are intended to be for every member of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 29 and 30 says, Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all, are all workers of miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? Every one of those questions in the Greek text is worded in such a way to expect a no answer. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Are all workers of miracles? No. Do all have gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. God never intended all Christians to be apostles or prophets or teachers or workers of miracles. He never intended all to have the gift of healing or to speak in other languages. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it remarkable that there are preachers and churches that continue to promote the idea that God's will for every Christian is to speak in tongues. That is the very error the Holy Spirit sought to correct almost 2,000 years ago, yet it is still being propagated wildly today. It is taught, especially here in the U.S., and the same error is being imported around, it has been imported around the world. I have encountered it in Germany and in Africa and in Russia and Ukraine and all other places around the world. Whenever I hear a preacher make that kind of statement, I find myself asking the basic question, have you ever read the Bible? Have you, have you ever read 1 Corinthians 12, where God says, do all speak with tongues? No. The Holy Spirit's answer to that is no. Do all have gifts of healing? No. It's important to understand that the power to cast out demons and the power to heal sickness is not inherent in being a Christian. These were unique, miraculous sign gifts given by Jesus to his disciples when he was preparing to send them out to preach. These sign gifts would verify that they were representatives of Jesus and they were spokesmen for the king and his kingdom. Just as the miracles of Jesus were a foretaste and a foreshadowing of the future kingdom, the same miraculous power displayed by the disciples would validate their message that the kingdom has drawn near because the king was present on earth. That was to be their message. That was to be their mission. That was to be their methodology. With this unique power, it would be obvious that the disciples were from Jesus and were representatives of Him. They were able to do the very same things He did. When they were out preaching, the multitudes may have wondered, and rightly so, this would not be out of line. What are your credentials? Who are you that we should believe you? Why should we believe you? What verifies your authority? Is this self-appointed? Today, the written Word of God verifies the messenger. We check to see if what the messenger says lines up with Scripture. But before the New Testament was written, before people could go to the New Testament and verify, God verified the messenger by miracles. 
So Mark makes sure to insert this important statement in verse 15. That Jesus gave them this unique power, this unique ability, this unique way to authenticate their message. And then, having said that, he gives us a list of the twelve. Verse 16 says, uh, verse, verse 15, he gave, to, to, he gave them to have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons. Here's the list, verse 16, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. Now, why is Peter listed first? Was he the first one chosen? No. No, you can see that in John 1. Was he the first best? No. But he was the first in the sense of rank. In other words, Peter was the leader of the twelve. Jesus was their master, their teacher, their rabbi. But Peter was what you could call the in-house leader. He is mentioned, interestingly, he is mentioned first in every list of the disciples recorded in the New Testament. Everyone. Peter is always first. In fact, Matthew, when he lists him first, calls him the protos in Greek, the first, the leader. The name given to him at birth was Simon. But Jesus changed his name to Peter, which means rock, because that's the kind of man Jesus wanted him to become. He was a man who was rather inconsistent in his walk with the Lord for a time. But Jesus transformed him into a rock-solid man and an exemplary leader. All you have to do is look at the first about eight, nine, ten chapters of the book of Acts, and you will see that Peter became a rock-solid man and an exemplary leader. Verse 17 continues the list. It says, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. So the next two men mentioned in this list are James and John, who were brothers. Mark tells us that Jesus nicknamed them Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. That indicates that they were fervent, ambitious, aggressive, charged up sort of guys. They were thunderous men. And that portrait of them is, comes through loud and clear in the pages of the New Testament. The Lord Jesus took their zeal, balanced it with love, and formed them into useful vessels for the work of the kingdom. Like Peter and Andrew, they were both originally fishermen. Jesus called them to follow him exclusively, to leave their employment, and to become his apostles. Verse 18 continues the list. It says, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite. The first man mentioned in this verse was Peter's brother Andrew. He, like his brother, was a fisherman. Andrew was actually one of the first to follow Jesus. If, you, if we had the time, we could go back to John 1 and see. He was one of the very first. He was a God-fearing Jew who actually followed John the baptizer for a while until he was pointed to the Messiah, and then he followed Messiah Jesus. Interestingly, he was neither the writer of an epistle nor the founder of a church, nor a leading figure in the apostolic age, but simply an intimate disciple of our Lord Jesus. He is a beautiful illustration of those who labor quietly in humble places behind the scenes. 
and who are a great asset to the work of Christ. That's Andrew. The next disciple mentioned in this verse is Philip. We are told in John's gospel that Philip came from Bethsaida, which is the same city from which Andrew and Peter came. So it's it's very likely that Philip was good friends with Peter and Andrew before they began to follow Jesus, or at least they knew each other or were were associates. In fact, it is likely that Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, and Thomas were all friends, or at least acquaintances, because it seems that all of them were fishermen from Galilee. Philip was a man with a seeking heart who found the Messiah and shared the glorious news with his friends and with others. He served the Lord faithfully until his death by martyrdom, according to historical tradition. The next disciple in this list here in verse 18 is Bartholomew. That was actually his last name. His first name was Nathaniel. He was a searcher of the Scripture. We see that in John 1 when Jesus first encountered him. He was a searcher of the Scripture whom the Lord called and sanctified and used to touch other people's lives. The next disciple here in this list is Matthew. Interestingly, when Matthew lists the disciples in his own gospel account, he mentions the fact that he had been a tax collector. He inserts that. Matthew, the tax collector. As you probably know, tax collectors in Israel were were traitors who had turned on their own people to work for Rome, the oppressor. In addition, they cheated and overcharged their own countrymen for their own benefit. So when Matthew mentions his previous occupation, he was acknowledging what he had been before Jesus called him. He wasn't ashamed to mention where he was. In fact, he says in in one of the accounts in his gospel that he was sitting at the tax office, Matthew 10, sitting at the tax office when Jesus called him. He wasn't ashamed to mention where he was when Jesus called him because he was thrilled that the Lord had transformed him. He was amazed that Jesus could forgive him and use him. And think about this. When Matthew walked away from his tax table, he walked away from his career. A lot more was at stake for him than for the fishermen who left their nets. If following Jesus didn't work out for the fishermen, they could go back to fishing. In fact, in John 21, it appears they started to do that. When they were so confused after the death of Jesus, uh, before they really understood the resurrection, they said, we're we're going fishing. It it appears that they were going to go back to their old profession. But chances are that when Matthew left his tax table, the Roman government immediately replaced him. He walked away from his career to be useful to the Lord Jesus Christ. The next disciple mentioned here in verse 18 in this list is Thomas. Elsewhere, he is called Didymus, which means twin. It's possible, not definite, but possible that his twin brother was Matthew because they are sometimes linked together. And we wonder sometimes by the way they're linked if the the writer is intending to show that they were twins. Thomas definitely was. We're not sure if Matthew was his twin brother or if it was someone else. As you well know, people often refer to this man as Doubting Thomas. 
But that is really unfortunate because if you look at the gospel accounts and you, you study each of the lives of the disciples, the fact is Thomas wasn't any more of a doubter than the others. No more. It's just that when he was told, he wasn't present on that first occasion when Jesus met the disciples after the resurrection, and he just he didn't want to be set up for major disappointment, so he simply said, listen, unless I can see with my own eyes and touch with my hands the, 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 the wounds in his body, I'm not going to believe you. I'm not going not to set myself up for major disappointment and hurt. And as a result of that, people call him Doubting Thomas. Actually, he was a man with an intense love for Jesus Christ. It was a love maybe unequaled among the disciples. After the resurrection, when Jesus appeared to him, Thomas responded with one of the greatest affirmations of the deity of Christ in the New Testament by saying, my Lord and my God. That was Thomas, a believer who loved Jesus immensely. The next disciple in this list is James, the son of Alphaeus. That's the description that Mark gives us, James, the son of Alphaeus. We know virtually nothing about this disciple except that Jesus chose him. He followed Jesus faithfully even when others in the crowd defected. And Jesus promised that he would be one of the twelve who will sit on a throne in the kingdom judging, one of the, uh, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That's all we know about this James. Nothing else. The same thing could be said about the next disciple mentioned here in verse 18, Thaddeus. From the traces we find in the scripture concerning this apostle, we can at least come up with his full name. His name was Judas Lebius Thaddeus. He was not often called Judas, for obvious reasons. But we don't know hardly anything else about this man. All we know is what I said a moment ago about James, the son of Alphaeus. Jesus chose him. He followed Jesus faithfully even when others in the crowd defected. And Jesus promised that he would be one of the twelve who will sit on a throne in the kingdom, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The final disciple listed in verse 18 is Simon the Canaanite. That's how Mark describes him, Simon the Canaanite. Acts 1.13 refers to Simon as Simon the Zealot. That's really an interesting title or designation. Simon the Zealot. That means he had been a member of the Zealot Party, which was the militant activist party in Israel that wanted to overthrow Roman dominion. With that in mind, consider the relationship between Matthew and Simon the Zealot. Think about that. Matthew worked for the Roman government collecting taxes, so he was a traitor. Simon was a zealot, so he was a radical revolutionary whose goal was to overthrow Rome at any cost, using guerrilla-type warfare and violence. If Simon had met Matthew... Anywhere but in the presence of Jesus, he would have stuck a dagger in him. He would have killed him if he could have gotten away with it. So just think of how wonderful it was for Simon to get along with Matthew. Matthew was a traitor who collected taxes for the Roman government. Zealots hated Rome and anyone connected to it, especially one of their own people who sold out to the Roman government. It's amazing to see them join hands in the love of Christ and the cause of Christ 
and the purposes of Christ. It's very likely that Simon and Judas Iscariot went out together two by two because in Mark 6 they are listed together in that way. You remember on one occasion Jesus sent his disciples out two by two. So you, you, you wonder, who went out with Judas? Probably this guy, Simon the Zealot. They both may have originally followed Jesus for the same political reasons. That's probably what attracted the both of them to Jesus. Hey, this guy is maybe the Messiah. If he's the Messiah, he'll overthrow Rome. We need to be on the inside. We want to follow this guy. They probably saw him as the one who would bring about political and social revolution by bringing in the kingdom, overthrowing Roman dominion. But here's the difference. Major difference. The difference between Simon and Judas was that Simon heard what Jesus had to say about salvation and believed. Judas refused. One was transformed. The other was damned. And that brings us to the last man in the list, Judas Iscariot. Verse 19, the first part of the verse, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. It's interesting to note that Judas Iscariot is always, always listed last in all four lists of the disciples we have in the New Testament. Always listed last. The name Judas was a very common name in first century Israel. In fact, there were two of the disciples who had that name. Judas Lebius Thaddeus was one, and Judas Iscariot was the other. So it was a very common name. It is the Greek form of Judah, the land of God's people. Some say the name comes from a root meaning Yahweh leads, while others think its root has reference to one who is the object of praise. Either way, it's a contradiction in the case of Judas Iscariot. If the, if the word, if the name means Yahweh leads, it's a contradiction because the gospel accounts make it clear that Judas was led by Satan. Not by Yahweh. If it means one who is the object of praise, it's a contradiction because there was never an individual more unworthy of praise than Judas Iscariot. Never. The name Iscariot basically comes from a combination of the Hebrew term Ish, which means man, and Kerioth, which was the name of a town in first century Israel. So Ish. Kerioth, or Iscariot in English, it simply means a man from the town of Kerioth. Judas, the man from the town of Kerioth. It's a geographical identification. It tells us where he came from. It's interesting to note that Judas is the only apostle who is identified geographically. Now, we know where the others came from, or at least most of the others, but they're not identified geographically. Judas was. This is important because he was the only non-Galilean, the only Judean Jew. You say, what's the significance of that? Well, if you know anything at all about the land of Israel, then you know that Galilee is the northern section and Judea is the southern section. The northern Galilean section was far more rural than the Judean section because the Judean section, the section of Judea, had Jerusalem, the major capital in it. As a result, the southern Jews usually saw themselves as better than, superior to the rural Jews of Galilee. It's ironic 
that the one who was supposedly the most superior in the bunch was really the most inferior. He was the pretender who ended up betraying our Lord. What a despicable, vile, heinous deed. I mean, you've, you've probably heard this so many times through your life that it just, you know, it's like water off a duck's back. You don't really stop to think about Think about this. This man betrayed Jesus to be murdered. I mean, it was bad enough that Judas followed Jesus without ever really submitting to him and loving him. That's terrible. And it was bad enough that Judas actually took money out of the ministry money box, according to John 12, 6. He pilfered money, money that people gave to Jesus and his disciples to use for ministry. Judas stole it. That's horrendous. But he, he could have simply walked away from Jesus when he realized that Jesus wasn't going to establish the kingdom at that time. He could have just walked away and said, okay, I see that things aren't going the way I want them to go, the way I anticipated they're going to go. Jesus isn't going to establish the kingdom now. He's going to be rejected by the leaders, so I'm out of here. He could have done that. He didn't have to stoop to the point of actually betraying Jesus by selling him for a few pieces of silver. But that's exactly what he did. As one man put it, Judas had the same potential as any of the others. Christ could have transformed him if his heart had been willing. He had the same raw material and was no more unqualified than the rest. But the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. While the other men were being melted and molded by their exposure to Jesus, Judas was being hardened. That was Judas. He was the only one of the twelve who never really belonged to Christ, never really became a vessel of honor sanctified and useful for the Master, never was genuine. Jesus repeatedly tried to tell his disciples that. John 6, have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? Jesus said, John 13, you're, I, you are all clean. Well, not all of you. Jesus continually tried to, twel- tried to tell the disciples that there was a phony in their midst so that when Judas eventually defected, it wouldn't confuse them and they think, oh, he lost his salvation somehow. No. He was never genuine. Never real. But the other 11 were different. They were ordinary men with an extraordinary task. They weren't supermen. They weren't in a class above the rest of us, as we tend to assume. They weren't super saints. That is not at all how Scripture presents them. They were just ordinary men that the Lord chose and transformed and equipped and used to minister on His behalf. Beloved, it is so important for us to realize that they were ordinary men, just like you and me. They had faults and flaws, and weaknesses, and shortcomings. You can see those just by reading the gospel accounts. And if you don't see that, you will tend to dismiss their example as being irrelevant to your own life. Well, I can't relate to them because, you know, they were these super saints. No. It's our tendency to put these men on a pedestal as superhuman. As a result, it's very easy to assume that we can't ever be useful to the Lord as they were. That is so inaccurate. 
That is so not true. These were ordinary men whom the Lord transformed and molded and grew and and matured and trained and equipped and shaped to be what he wanted them to be. And here's the good news. The Lord can do the same thing in us. As we close, look with me over at 2 Timothy chapter 2. Turn to the right past Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Notice what Paul says here. Verse 19. It says, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are are His. Jesus knew which of the twelve, the eleven of the twelve were His, and that one wasn't His. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house, this this is a powerful illustration. In a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. That last phrase describes the lives of 11 of the 12 disciples. They were vessels of honor sanctified and useful to the Master. But here's the application, beloved. We can be that too. Look at verse 21. Do you see how how it begins? It says, Therefore, if anyone, anyone, that's you, that's me, any one of us can be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the Master. If we're willing to yield to the Lord as He transforms us and molds us and grows us and matures us and trains us and equips us and shapes us to be what He wants us to be. Any one of us can be a vessel of honor if we're willing. So are you willing? Are you willing to be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the Master? The starting point, the starting point is to make sure that you know Jesus Christ personally as your own Lord and Savior. That's the starting point. The starting point is to to humble yourself before Him in repentance, to receive Him into your life. Because unless you know Him, unless you have a relationship with Him, you can never be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful to the Master. So if you don't know Christ, if you've never received Christ in His salvation, That's where you need to begin. And if you do know Christ, then you need to long to be and yearn to be and desire to be and pray to be what verse 21 says, a a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful to the Master. Let's bow together as we close. As you bow your head and close your eyes to give thought to what you have seen this morning in God's Word. I don't know about for you, but for me, it is, it's always so encouraging just to go back and look at the disciples because when you really look at them and consider them and think about them and study them, 
it's, it's so encouraging to realize they were just men. Just men. Some fishermen. One a former tax collector. One a former zealot. Just a hodgepodge of men. But men that the Lord chose to be vessels of honor, sanctified and useful to the Master. It's such an encouragement to my own heart to know that we can be in that same category. We can be those who are vessels of honor, sanctified, useful to the Master, if we're willing. So if you're here today as a child of God, you want to know, well, what's the application to me from, from that text in Mark about the disciples? That's it. Right there out of 2 Timothy 2. Right now, in, the, in your own heart before the Lord, just say, Lord, I want to be a vessel of honor, sanctified, useful to the Master. I want to be useful. I want you to use me as you see fit. Whatever that role is, whatever, whatever part you want me to play, I want to be useful. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, as I said, the starting point the starting point here is for you to receive Christ, to repent of your sin and turn to Him. You can never be useful to the Master if you have no relationship with Him. So yield to Him. Surrender to Him. Receive Christ today. Father, we are encouraged when we look back and think about these men your Son, the Lord Jesus, chose to be His disciples, to be His apostles, those that He would send out. It's encouraging to us to examine their lives and study their lives and think through who they were, what they were like, because it shows us they were just ordinary men, like us in many ways. And it gives us hope, it gives us encouragement that we too can be used by you for your purposes. So that is our prayer, that is our desire, that we would be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful to the Master. And in closing, Father, we want to pray for anyone here with us who can't be that now because he or she doesn't know your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that your Holy Spirit would would draw them to surrender to Christ today, to come to know him, to enter into a relationship with him so they can become, they can begin becoming a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful to the master. In whose name we pray, amen.